Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. How much prevention you want to put in place is just how much risk is one willing to take. And a lot of factors determine that. Um, if we think about the modes of transportation, then think about each route of entry can be a given risk level depending on the phase of production, geography, and other production system characteristics. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Eat Podcast. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Jessica Risser, and uh, the title of today's episode is Purse. From mystery disease to not so mysterious anymore. How are you today, Dr. Risser? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. And uh, first question is, uh, if you can share with us a little bit about your background uh, and your career so far and how you got involved in uh, pig production. Sure. So my road uh, to the swine industry is an untraditional one. I didn't grow up with a lot of pigs, but I think there's more and more of us getting into the industry these days that don't have the pig background. Right. Um, I grew up in West Virginia. It's a state known for coal mining and not really agriculture, mm -hmm. but my parents had um, average size cow-calf farm. So I did grow up with livestock animals around me and really developed that passion for safeguarding the food through livestock production. Um, I had a strong interest in the science behind animal health, too. So after attaining my bachelor's of science degree from West Virginia University, I went on to attend North Carolina State University School of Veterinary Medicine. Mm -hmm. And it was really in North Carolina that my advisor, Dr. Glenn Allman, um, and a fellow swine clinician, Dr. Butch Baker, introduced me to the swine production. Working with the systems in eastern North Carolina through them, I created a pretty good network uh, within the swine industry, and it didn't take me too many summers to commit my career to the swine industry. Uh, very fortunate with my first career opportunity was close to home in Pennsylvania with Country View Family Farm. Mm -hmm. They're an entity of the Clements Food Group. There are uh, 65,000 sows in Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, and Indiana. And um, then there's 20 other independent producers that supply hogs to 
the two harvest facilities in Pennsylvania and Michigan. So over the 10 years at Clemens, I oversaw all the animal health from birth to market, the animal welfare programs, including the implementation of third-party animal welfare audits on farm and the animal handling program within the plants to comply with federal and customer requirements. A few months ago, I took the new career opportunity with Alanco Animal Health as a senior technical consultant within the swine business unit. And I'm excited to be helping various swine producers and veterinarians in the Eastern Corn Belt region find solutions to their um, animal health needs and work with a diverse team in Alanco. Very nice. Yeah, very uh, active career uh, so far and uh, lots of production experience. Uh, we like to see that. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, jump right into it then. Um, Dr. Risser, uh, can you define PERS? I'm sure most everyone is familiar, even though there's some folks in our audience, uh, audience that are lucky enough to not have that in their country. Um, but if you can share the definition of PERS and um, walk us through the brief history of it. Yeah, so I'm young enough to be fortunate, or I'm not sure unfortunate, to know the U.S. wine industry. Um, I've always known it with PERS, I should say. I don't know it without PERS. Mm -hmm. So it is really second nature to me to think about the virus and how it impacts our production and biosecurity. PERS, or it's abbreviated P-R-R-S-V, stands for Porcine Reproductive and Respiratory Syndrome Virus. Um, but before the etiology was determined in the early 1990s, the U.S. industry referred to it as mystery pig disease. Um, Cox postulates were fulfilled in 1991 with the etiology being a previously unrecognized RNA virus. And so PERS is a small RNA envelope virus, and it's highly host-specific to replication in the porcine alveolar macrophages and in macrophages of other tissues. Um, it has been shown to replicate in testicular germ cells in infected boards as well. The nature of the RNA viruses is the rate of mutation and the ability of this virus to hide, I guess for a lack of a better word, um, then become reactivated under periods of stress, which adds challenges for producers and swine veterinarians in the control, management, and eradication of the virus from a herd. Um, it will replicate in the macrophages of lymphoid tissues and then spread rapidly throughout the body by the lymphomatic route. And we can see typically peak viremia patterns are 7 to 10 days post-infection. However, the duration of viremia varies depending on the strain, the age of the pig, um, co-infections impacting the immune system, and several, others, um, several other items. And, but in some instances, the viremia can persist for three months in an individual pig. Very good. Thanks for that um, background there. And uh, what is the economic impact um, of PERS to the global swine industry? Yeah, so it's one of the most devastating diseases impacting the swine industry worldwide. Um, in 2013, Holtkamp and others calculated the impact of PERS to the U.S. swine industry as $664 million per year. Um, that's around $157 per sow per year in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then in Europe, it's been reported that average losses um, for PERS outbreaks were estimated at 126 euros per sow. Mm -hmm. um, I tried to convert the U.S. dollars to euros just to see if I could compare a little bit. 
And if I did the conversion correctly, I'm not sure if I did or not, it would be um, the U.S. number would be around 146 euros per sale in the U.S. Okay. For their breaks. Very good. Um, yeah, it's it's a massive impact uh, right there. And uh, can you um, dive a little deeper on the symptoms and signs uh, to watch for um, on purse? Sure. So you're getting to the heart of my production background and what I would be really looking for um, out in the field. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different pathogenic strains of PERS because of, because of its rapid mutation. Um, so this will unpack the type of clinical signs that are observed. And there's other critical factors that determining symptoms. Um, like I said before, the age of the pigs is pretty important. You'll see more severe signs in pigs that are pre-weaning versus post-weaning and later in grow finished or mature. Um, it's also important to think about what other pathogens are endemic in the herd, and that impacts what clinical signs that you see in the barn. So mycoplasma, influenza, streptococcus suis, haemophilus parasuis, circovirus, all of those can impact um, the severity of the clinical signs in the barn. Um, previous exposure is also important. Are you um, working with a herd that's seen PERS before, a homogenous or heterogeneous strains, or is it a completely naive herd? As the name of the virus indicates, porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome virus, there's two body systems that are really impacted that you see visibly um, in positive animals. So reproductive signs are found at the sow farms and breeding herds, and these symptoms don't really come in any particular order or start in any particular area of the barn. It really depends on how and where the virus enters the farm. So if it's via people, supplies, transportation, replacement animals, all of those can determine where or how the, the disease starts. So at the beginning of a break with sows, typically you have lethargy, inappetence, some mild fevers, rapid spike in abortions, and especially in that mid-gestation phase. And then as the virus enters the farrowing barn, you start to see the rate of stillborns and mummies and poor doing pigs at birth rapidly increase. And then consequently, the pigs aren't nursing very well, and that causes further complications in breeding and conception in the next turn for the south. So in my experience, strains with lower reproductive pathogenicity, um, the first symptom may not be anything with the sows. It may be an increase in pre-weaning scours of the nursing pigs. Mm -hmm. It really varies and can cause a lot of confusion on farm for the team as to what the root cause of the issue is and what their next steps should be. Um, so sometimes it's confusing if they're dealing with PERS or not. Mm -hmm. um, in mature boars, an early indicator is a dip in semen production or a spike in abnormal cells. So they too can be symptomatic or asymptomatic from the observation of lethargy and inappetence or fever. And the second part of the syndrome is a manifestation of respiratory signs. And these can be observed in both the growing pigs and mature swine. The severity is usually age dependent as well as dependent on co-infections. Many people, I've heard uh, folks in production say that I have coughing pigs, I must have PERS, and that's not really true. So uncomplicated PERS, where you just have PERS virus in the pigs, they shouldn't be coughing. Um, they're actually usually just lethargic and have an appetence and a mild fever. Um, but those that are used to seeing influenza or many of the bacterial pneumonias with PERS can see the coughing and some of the other clinical signs of the co-infection. PERS by itself can have a lot of ramifications on growth performance as the pigs will take more days to get to acceptable market weight. 
which for producers is a key performance indicator and very financially critical. So as I said, most PERS positive pigs are complicated with at least one or not more co-pathogens. Any of the influenzas, mycoplasmas, or many bacteria that cause pneumonia or polycericitis. Uh, so often a producer and practitioners will observe clinically more of the endemic or co-infection ramifications. They'll see a spike in those symptoms versus that of just a PERS virus that triggers them to inquire more and dig more into why their pigs aren't responding to their normal treatment practices. Very good. Um, very, very clear. And uh, what would be strategies to prevent PERS? So uh, prevention strategies, this is a really good question because I would, as a practitioner, much rather prevent PERS than have to address the aftermath of it right. in any part of production. Uh, so uh, not all systems or veterinarians or farmers value prevention the same. So it's pretty similar to an insurance policy of how much prevention you want to put in place. It's just how much risk is one willing to take. And a lot of factors determine that. Um, if we think about the modes of transportation, then think about each route of entry can be a given risk level depending on the phase of production, geography, and other production system characteristics. So um, think about lateral entry is through direct contact or indirectly through fomites that are carrying PERS virus. Um, I've often said that a fomite is anything entering the farm other than the pigs already residing at the farm. Uh, so you just think about that and think about all the steps that we put into place for ourselves to enter the farm and our supplies that we bring in or new replacement animals. Um, we can also think about this on a global or individual animal perspective. So it's important to ask ourselves what is the objective are the prevention or biosecurity practices limiting the disease entry into a country, a region, a state, a county, a farm, a barn on that farm, or a room, or even maybe even just an individual farrowing stall? So there's various levels of biosecurity and prevention that we can think about. Um, there's uh, various aspects and dimensions that we can be considered and applied to PERS or any of the other disease threats. And I just think about, and this is a little side note, but biosecurity and prevention practices for PERS don't really only apply to PERS. They can mm -hmm. apply to a lot of other domestic and foreign animal diseases. Um, so that's important to remember just with all the other disease conversations that are happening these, these days worldwide. But if we think about PERS and think about fomites, so it's anything that can be carrying nasal secretions or any of the other bodily fluids that has PERS in it and then we start placing standard operating procedures at each of those locations and prevent the movement of those items or at least the cleaning and disinfection of these items between sites. And uh, a really good study that often resurfaces when we're talking about prevention, and it's a good one to scare people with, is a reminder of the, of the snowball study that Dr. Scott D. had done early on in um, the PERS investigation in which he showed the mechanical transmission of PERS that it can, can occur in normal swine production movements between farms and swine production offices during cold weather. So PERS does survive longer in colder temperatures. However, it's been shown to impact farms in all weather seasons, and I highly recommend having biosecurity and monitoring practices in place all year round. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty fortunate, though, that PERS virus is quickly inactivated through lipid solvents heat, drying, and at a pH level below 5 or above 7. 
So first we can consider transportation equipment. At minimum, transportation equipment needs to be cleaned and disinfected and allowed to dry in between loads at all stages of production. And the drying time can take the most time, the drying steps, but especially in the middle of winter in Midwest United States, it's really tough to get transportation equipment dry. So many in the U.S. wine industry have turned to um, trailer bakers, so to use the temperature in their favor to prevent the purse transmission. So following routine cleaning and disinfection procedures, the transportation equipment is baked to a minimum of 140 degrees Fahrenheit and then held for a preset amount of time. I mean, I know not all farms have this equipment in place, but it's a pretty um, neat way to use technology and the characteristics of the virus being susceptible to drying and heat to prevent that transmission between farms. I mean, another way to do it if you don't have this that equipment in place is to just restrict movement between farms and set a preset number of nights down away from pigs for equipment and people and supplies um, so that the everything can be cleaned and disinfected and have time to dry. Um, the same cleaning and disinfection and drying procedures can be put into place for smaller equipment or supplies used in the industry. Many of our breeding herds have fumigation rooms in which small supply items are placed into and then fumigated or fogged with a disinfectant that and then allow time to dry before they're entered into the farm. Um, there's another technology that many farms use and has been shown effective for PERS, it's ultraviolet light exposure. This is a convenient for smaller supplies or personal items that are taken across the clean, dirty lines. Uh, and that with clean dirty lines brings up another very critical piece to biosecurity and clean dirty lines we talk about a lot and that's the pre-identified line that indicates a step or procedure needs to be taken. So depending on the stage of production and the type of programs the farm is under will determine the steps taken if there are various lines staggered coming into the site. Um, as an example, a breeding herd may have three separate barriers to entry versus a finisher that's shipping pigs directly to market. So a breeding herd may have a gate at the end of the driveway to restrict any vehicle traffic on site or to indicate that if a vehicle is coming on site, it needs to be cleaned and disinfected. A second barrier may be that an individual getting out of the vehicle would put on shoe covers. Um, and then third, before they enter into the farm, they may have to shower and change into clothing that's farm specific. Whereas at a finisher that has market animals, there just may be that last barrier of a clean, dirty line where they're changing into farm-specific coveralls and boots. So those differences of how many steps we put into place, considering what the life cycle of the pigs are on the farm, if it's continuous flow, a breeding herd, if it's all in, all out by site, um, if it's fair to finish, fair to wean, wean to finish, a nursery or just finishing. Um, all of those have to be taken into consideration um, when designing the biosecurity program um, for a farm and even in, inside a farm too. So um, we don't want to forget about internal biosecurity and those internal biosecurity procedures really come become really important when we're talking about that we've had a break mm -hmm. and then we're trying to minimize movement um, within a farm or just in different barns on the same site. So um, those are important procedures in place between animals on the same farm. We can also think about natural barriers. Probably not enough credit is given to those. 
mm-hmm. um, or maybe lack thereof some natural mm-hmm. barriers in some parts of the U.S. industry. So in my part of the world where I was practicing, there's mountains and trees and shrubs, and we took those to advantage to change the airflow to and from farms and create a natural filtration system. But um, in geographic areas that are flat and without natural barriers actually tend to be where most of the dense hog populations are in the United States because of the availability of grains for feed. So farms in those regions are more likely to build some positive filtration systems just because they don't have the natural filtration systems around them. Um, and that helps to prevent the aerial spread of PERS between farms. That's very interesting. Uh, and it made, I think about some farms in Brazil where um, there's a lot of trees around the farms and, um, and uh, like a natural barrier, but, but you made a good point. A lot of the pig dance areas in the U.S. don't have that uh, natru- naturally there. So it would be expensive probably to, to plant those as well. And take up a lot of important grain crop right. land. Yeah. So other, just a couple other things on prevention and biosecurity that I like to emphasize when I'm talking about this is people travel. And we're traveling more and more across the country and internationally. But it's also surprising to hear about how pigs travel. So, um, you know, pigs are getting on airplanes as well these days. So we can't drop the ball and asking about travel internationally across the country or even local travel into livestock auctions or fairs. Um, We also want to think about when we're purchasing animals, uh, where are they coming from? What is their herd status or pathogen risk that we're going to be bringing in? So it's always important to have those veterinary discussions between your veterinarian and the veterinarian of the source herd to understand those risks that we would be bringing into our herd. And then lastly is diagnostic surveillance not really prevention, but more of a monitoring of the herd statuses and understanding risk of spreading of PERS from farm to farm. And there's some really easy technology with the oral fluid technology uh, for folks to get samples of various ages of pigs on a routine basis. And we can test those through the polymerase chain reaction, which is the PCR, or for antibody responses through ELISA tests. Very nice. It's it's amazing the, the amount of... Uh you know, knowledge that there is and, and protocols that, that can uh, be put in place. And like you said, the, the most interesting part is that everything that um, you implement uh, to that, to PERS, uh, it's going to help with a lot of other diseases. So that's that's very cool. And, and once you got that in place, you know, it, it turns out to be a pretty uh, cost-effective way of uh, cont- uh, preventing uh, PERS. So that's that's nice. How about um, controlling once uh, it's already infected? What would be some thoughts on that? Yeah, so unfortunately, a farm can have all those prevention procedures in place and still break with PERS. Um, so that's when we start thinking about control and stabilization. And maybe if a farm is lucky to have a successful history of keeping PERS out, they can consider an elimination program. So research into control methods have been emphasized a lot more in breeding herds than grow finish just because of the continuous flow and age of the animals at the breeding herd farms versus a all-in, all-out finishing barn. But the first um, step, though, is to consider the site's history, how the virus entered the farm, and can those risks be removed for the long term? And that applies to both the breeding herds and the grow finish herds. So knowing the area helps to predict what types of programs will be effective for the future. 
So for breeding herds, we often talk about a breeding herd closure, and this is a sequence of events that includes a load, close, expose, and stabilize the farm. So prior to a closure, a breeding herd will receive additional gilts, and this is the load phase. And it's important that the farm has gilts to maintain breeds through the closure. And then the farm is closed. So once they're loaded, they have the additional gilts that they need, then the farm is closed to no more new entries of animals. If the farm is a fair to feeder or finish, it's uh, really important for producers to consider moving pigs off-site for that grow-finish phase. And the goal with that is to minimize um, the number of animals on-site that has less exposure or a more naive immunological status to the particular virus, because you really want to be able to get all of the animals on site at the same exposure and the same immune status to that particular virus. And next is exposure. That's how we're going to do it. Um, these methods have evolved over time for breeding herds. Um, however, multiple breaks and control, control strategies have shown that all the animals on site really need to be exposed to the live virus or an attenuated virus of similar genetic characteristics. A vaccination of all the breeding animals on site with a commercially available modified live vaccine is the most common route for this exposure. And then the last step is stabilization and monitoring through the remainder of the herd closure. And this is where the internal biosecurity practices become pretty important. In the mid-1990s, the term McRebel was coined by Dr. Monty McCall, and the procedures focused on minimizing transmission of PERS within the farrowing barn between litters of pigs, and this is especially during standard operating processes such as ear notching, tail docking, and injection of medications and vaccines. So during this phase of the control, attenuated modified live vaccines also continue to be utilized to reduce the shedding of virus within and from the farm. Herd closures are monitored through the piglet viremia at birth and at weaning, and they are the most naive animals on site with the least established immune system to fight the virus. So ultimately, at the end of a herd closure, with the purpose of elimination, the piglets need to have shown a consistent negative by PCR throughout the pre-weaning phase. And the length of time it takes to accomplish this is really strain and herd specific. There are very pathogenic strains that move fast through a population, while others take longer to move and develop um, that immune response that's needed. So I mentioned the first attenuated or modified live vaccines using stabilizing breeding herds, but these can also be used and are commonly used in administration to piglets that may be negative or positive at the time of weaning, but are being transported and grown out in positive geographic areas. So these vaccines have shown to reduce viremia, decrease shedding, and improve the growth of the pigs through market. Very interesting. That makes total sense, uh, Jessica. What would be from the what would be the latest and deepest understanding of PERS today? In, in other words, what's what's new with PERS? Yeah, so there are individuals who have dedicated their careers to studying this virus, and if you think about it, over the last 30 years, the industry has obtained a lot of scientific literature on various aspects of the virus, the diagnostic tools, um, prevention strategies, as well as control and management methods. And so the unique or maybe frustrating trait of PERS and the disease that manifests is the variation in the change. It seems from the perspective of me being a recent practitioner in the field, it was as soon as we thought we had it, 
figured out, it changed, yes. it mutated or recombined with something different. And so it alters the pathogenicity mm-hmm. or we find it in a new location that shifts our risk level for transmission to naive herds. So more recent technology that's being applied to the field is whole genome sequencing. And um, traditionally the OR5 gene of the virus is what was sequenced to determine if a clinical picture is new from, is from a different strain or if it's a similar strain of a previous break within the system or an endemic strain. But what we're finding is that strains aren't matching. What we're getting on our sequence isn't matching what we're seeing in the field from our history. Mm. And a lot of the large production systems and veterinary clinics, they use a lot of big data sets to connect the sequence of the OR5 to the performance of the pigs of what they're seeing in a lot of the clinical history and diagnostics. And we're starting to build this picture But then when it doesn't match up over time, we're starting to ask a lot more questions. And in these cases, the whole genome sequencing is warranted and it's helping us to understand that whole virus of um, more specifically about is it recombining with other strains? Um, And I hope that we can also learn a lot more from it. I think there's a lot more that we can learn about pathogenicity and then even more about the strain itself. Is it gonna elicit more of a reproductive or respiratory clinical picture? I mean, I think there's a lot more that we can learn from it, but it's a new diagnostic tool that is getting closer to the field, to the pigs. And then a second area of research that I don't know that we have a lot of information on, but there are people working on it, is the question regarding how PERS virus takes advantage of the pig's immune system. Mm -hmm. And are there technologies or methods that we can actually block that um, and use it as a, a more broad spectrum intervention? Very good. If you could write one thing about PERS on a billboard uh, for all pig producers and swine professionals to read uh, when they are driving, uh, what would that be? Yes, I'm not a real big marketing uh, creative person. I tend to lean more on the technical information. So this is probably the hardest question that you had. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I thought about it and I just came up with safeguard your barn, PERS is changing. Interesting. Very good. Anything else on PERS, um, Dr. Jessica, before we move to the three questions that we ask every guest? Hey, so I just thinking through these questions and preparing for the discussion, I really stopped to think about, um, I hear a lot of presentations from leadership development on the different generations of people. Mm-hmm. And so society categorizes generations based on what they know or have experienced. Mm-hmm. And I just think about... Um, the new practitioners in the field today, um, even myself, uh, I've been in, was in practice for 10 years, and we don't know a U.S. wine industry without PERS. Mm-hmm. And so there's a few of us that can remember when circovirus came in, mm-hmm. before the vaccines were available, and we can remember life before porcine epidemic diarrhea, mm-hmm. but fewer and fewer of the swine industry remembers life before PERS. And so... I've heard many people say that, that we have it and we have to learn to live with it. But I really do want to see us challenge ourselves as an industry that we can get back to maybe living without it again. Mm-hmm. And so I believe it is important for us to continue to share experiences and learnings from the early days of the mystery pig disease and apply those to new technologies and diagnostics that we have to really push ourselves forward. Very nice. Yeah, I think that's... a. Uh honorable goal to have uh, for sure as an industry. 
Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, Zinpro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. It is time to our famous three. What is your favorite swine-related book? Uh, so I'm pretty traditional. The Disease is a Swine book is my favorite. Mm-hmm. I I have that. I would bet money that was your favorite book, <laughs> for sure. What's your uh, favorite book in general outside of pig production? Uh, so traditionally, my book would be Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. Um, enjoy watching the movies as well. Um, but, and that's by Jane Austen, but more recently, a really good book that I've read that can apply probably more to others is a book called Never Split the Difference mm-hmm. by Chris Voss. Very good. Um, it's about negotiation just in life. I mean, even I listened to him speak and he taught me how to negotiate with my three-year-old at bedtime to get him to go to bed. So it's a great book for life. Very nice. I, I love that book as well. Yeah, his experience as, uh, I believe, was FBI, right? The best negotiator from FBI is, is amazing. Correct. Yep. Very good. Uh, and lastly, uh, in your opinion, what separates successful swine professionals from those that are not? So I really believe in proactive adaptation to change. So not being reactive, but really thinking ahead, looking towards the future or what, um, predicting what changes are coming. Very nice. Very good, Dr. Jessica. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Um, thanks so much and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you.